0: the weekly GBC sermon podcast from Guy Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. This message is a return to our year-long series on Nehemiah, Rebuilding for Purpose. Senior Pastor Mark Rader explores what it means to understand and fear the Lord so that the joy of the Lord will be our strength. But we're about to hear from Mark Rader, our Senior Pastor in the book of Nehemiah. And Mark, Mark likes to play tricks on me. Um, So he asked me to do the Bible reading today because it's got a bucket load of names in it and he just loves a good stitch up. Look at that face. Look at that smile. It's cruel. But here we go. So we're reading from Nehemiah, starting at chapter 7, in the second part of verse 73. It's, Ezra reads the law and actually um, as we read the Bible reading today, when Ezra first read the law to the Israelites, they did so standing um, in an act of worship and praise of the law of the Lord. Um, So I actually ask us as a community of faith to stand as we receive the law and for you online, I know you're in your living room and it might feel a little bit weird, but you're here with us and so please stand with us as we hear the Lord read. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him, on his right, stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah and Masiah, and on his left were Padeah, Mesiel, Melchizedek, Mashem, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zachariah, and Meshulatham. Thank you. I hear those hands. <laughs> Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their face to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabathai, Hodiah, Masiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad. Hanan and Paliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and the teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God, do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, "Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some of those, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. do not grieve." Then all the people went away to eat and drink to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them.
1: Well done, Matt. The trick to reading names in Scripture is to say them confidently, right? Because then everyone goes, oh, that's how you pronounce that word. And you're like, yeah, yeah, of course it is. (laughs) So why wouldn't it be? So there you go, giving the secret away. Um, Before we turn to this passage in Nehemiah, an extraordinary passage, by the way. It sounds like a a very typical Bible story where a bunch of people gather together to read the Bible. I mean, does it get more Bible than that? But it's quite remarkable in its essence. I wanted to give you just a really brief update about one other thing that's coming up in the future, and that is our carols in the backyard. For those, many of you are aware, of course, that Seymour Shaw, the park that we have used down at Miranda for the last last number of years that we were able to use an outdoor facility, is no longer available to us. Uh, They're putting in synthetic pitches, and uh, we've been told that Carroll's is not something that they want to do on that surface, just like it was at Carillo before that. Uh, and so the, the, the committee was forced to kind of come up with a couple of different solutions uh, and wh- rather than looking for another large area, of which there aren't very many in the Sutherland Shire, we decided that we would continue to take this online, not just because of the material kind of reasons of no longer having a large site, but also because as a committee we've been reflecting for a number of years about how uh, one of the things that we lack in a big event like that is the one-on-one connection with people. Uh, we've never run carols in order to get people to come to church. That's never been our motivation. But it would be nice if we saw some people from the crowd of four or 5,000 who eventually kind of found their way into a church. Now, we don't know how that happens in other churches, but we're just aware that you know, lots of people come. Most of the good stories are the stories of you gathering your friends and family along and being part of that as a family or as a group. So we really wanted to facilitate more of that local community. And so the idea with the carols in your backyard is that we're going to pre-record this once again. We're going to make it available to churches and community groups to hold what we're calling micro events of 50 to maybe 100 or 200 people where the key idea is that everyone is known. So a group actually kind of gathers all their playtime families together and would run a carols event where all of the people who gather are actually known by the organizers, where they hold um, uh, carols for a retirement village or for those in a prison or whatever the case might be. And we're really hopeful that this will not only kind of further our reach and be a resource for other community groups, but also allow people to actually... Kind of take it that next step and touch individual lives because they're known. They're not part of a crowd. They're actually part of a community. So I'm really excited about what's happening. Uh, And just to kind of let you know where we're up to, the music, you've seen some photos behind me. The music has been pre-recorded. So Steve and the band recorded those a couple of weeks ago now. We have a day set aside on the, uh, the Tuesday, the 27th of September, where we're going to be filming the event at Shara Christian School. Really grateful for their willingness to partner with us in that space. Uh, and uh, Belinda has been doing a whole lot, a bunch of work with Hillary as well and contacting all sorts of groups. And we've got about 20 churches who are interested in running this, as well as one of the leaders of Baptist Care, who's going to be promoting it through all of their chaplains in all of their various areas. Uh, we have a school that's interested in running as their end-of-year kind of big thing for uh, their entire community. Um, it's been promoted through Crossover Australia, uh, and uh, a retirement village in Tasmania was one of the first to log in because that's what they wanted to do, seeing that in Crossover. So there's lots and lots that's happening. I know that we're asking you to be praying for the Day of Discernment. Uh, there's lots of things that we want to be engaged in, but can I just add, encourage you to add carols? To, the, to your list of things that you pray for, uh, not only because of the impact that it may have, but also for what we want to do with it as well. Uh, Beck and Rox have had some initial conversations about hosting some family events where the people who gather are not just a crowd, but actually a community where we actually may have two or three different events that we run in order to kind of make that one-on-one connection a little bit stronger. So really excited about it. Recognize that it is a big change, though. Uh, There's a part of me that wishes that in 2019 we decided to move online prior to it so we could have celebrated properly. Uh, It feels a bit like we'd like to go back one more time, Uh, but we'll have to wait and see how that unfolds. But can I ask you to be praying for that, thinking about that as we move forward? Really exciting opportunity for us wanted to get you a bit of an update, because we're going to go pretty quiet with discernment and hope field over September, so we'll, uh, we'll come back to this, obviously, probably in October or November. All right? Well, let's turn again to Nehemiah chapter 8, <clears throat> this passage, as I said, which is actually quite a remarkable one. We've been traveling through Nehemiah, for those of you who might be visiting with us, uh, over the course of the year, kind of in, in little kind of fits and starts. So I think this is probably the third kind of time we've turned to the book of Nehemiah. Uh, And just to kind of bring you up to speed, the wall, which is of course what Nehemiah is known for, right, building the wall of Jerusalem, the wall has been completed. That actually was finished at the end of chapter 6. It's not though until we get to chapter 12 that they dedicate the wall. That's the first time that we kind of return to the wall which reminds us that Nehemiah as a book is not just about the renovation and rebuilding of the bricks and mortar, but about the renovation and rebuilding of the community, the community of faith. And there's something really important taking place here. We're kind of given a bit of a clue in chapter seven when we have the list of all the people who came back from exile. Now, it's not great reading, right? But if you go back to chapter seven and have a look in verse eight, We're told that the descendants of Perosh, numbered 2,172, of Shepatiah, 372, and on and on it goes. What's unique about this list is not actually that it's unique. It's actually the second time it's been included in this book. Ezra and Nehemiah is one book in the Hebrew. And this list is identical to the list in Ezra chapter 2. So the author wants to remind us that the group of people who have rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, the people who are now gathered together to hear the law of the Lord, are the ones who have returned from exile. These are the people whom God has brought from all over where they were scattered and brought them back to Jerusalem. So there's something going on in what happens here that relates to these people who have been brought back from exile, who have brought back to the city of Jerusalem, who now stand within its walls. But as I said, the story, I don't know if you, if you were kind of paying much attention as it was being read, apart from listening to how well Matt pronounced all the names, right? But it does seem like a fairly unremarkable story. If I said to you, our Bible story today is a group of people who followed the Lord reading the Bible, like there's a part of you who would kind of go, well, that sounds like what? That's everywhere, isn't it? But it's actually fairly rare in Scripture, funnily enough. There are a couple of really significant moments where the law is read. Uh, Moses reads the law. It's essentially the book of Deuteronomy. That's That's the plot. He gathers the people of Israel. They're not yet in the promised land, and he reads the law. He reminds them of all that God has done and all that they are required to do and encourages them to be faithful. We find another significant, actually two significant readings of the law in Joshua, in chapter 8 and in chapter 24, when the people of Israel finally enter into the land and they get to a place called Shechem, which is kind of um, a historically significant place for them, kind of like uh, Port Botany would be for us. Not the biggest city, not the most important place, but a place of real significance in the history of the nation of Israel. They read the law there. And then they read the law at the end of Joshua's life. And again, he reminds them of what God has done for them, encourages them to be faithful. Then you have to fast forward to the book book of 2 Kings and Josiah, the king, a godly king of Judah, who actually gathers the people and reads the law once again. But outside of that, you don't have very many instances where people are gathered together to read the law. Now, we assume that it happened in lots of places. Deuteronomy 31 starting in verse nine, says that every seven years the people were to gather at the Feast of Tabernacles, which we'll hear about next week, and read the law. And those who were to be gathered were the men, the women, the children, and the foreigners, so they could hear and learn what it meant to live faithfully in relationship to the Lord. So we assume that it happened along the way, but we've only got kind of those, those kind of four examples under some really significant leaders. Moses, Joshua, Josiah. And then this one. But this one is completely unique. And I want to draw your attention to kind of four features of it that I think really speak into, well, not only explain this passage, but also speak for us as well. I want to draw your attention, first of all, in chapter 8 to verse 1. The first unique thing about this. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. Now, I don't know about you, not super familiar with the gates of Jerusalem, right? But the water gate is, is, is noteworthy because it's not the temple. If I said to you, Ezra the priest is going to read the Bible for you, it's a bit of a kind of, a, but you have to find where he's going to be. How many of you would have shown up at a gate that was not the temple? Like surely, if he's gonna read the law, like it's the, he's the priest, like we'll go to church. We'll go to the temple courtyards. It's a great big courtyard kind of custom made for people listening to the law. Nope, he does it at the water gate. And if you think about the city of Jerusalem, the the temple complex was to the north, and the water gate is down in the southern part next to a source of water, thus the creative name, right? It was a place where sheep and goats and cattle would have been watered, where people would have been going in and out of the city to draw water for their daily needs. It was a It was the kind of the bustling market of the city. That's where they read the law. Not gathered before the tabernacle, not at some sort of really significant religious place, but in the middle of their day-to-day life. It's quite remarkable, really. As is the fact that it's not Ezra who says, Hey, hey everybody, I'm going to read the law for six hours, because that's how long he reads it. Anyone who'd like to come, come along. Did you notice who initiates this? It's not Ezra. It's not Nehemiah. It's actually the people. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And that is almost unheard of in the Old Testament. Moses would read the law to the people, Joshua would read the, the law to the people. Josiah the king would have somebody read it to the people. But we don't find very often where the people say, you know what we could really do with? We could do with a good reading of the law. Let's go call out the priest and get him to we'll set something up. We'll get a platform for him. And he can read the law for us for like six hours because that's how long he reads it for, right? So is everyone strapped in for <clears throat> the people? This is really quite Interesting. It's almost unheard of in Scripture. And then did you notice the emphasis on the word understanding? It actually occurs six times in this passage. Four times it's translated as understanding, right? So at the very beginning, it says that, uh, if you have a look again, verse 2, "...on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand." We're told again that the group was made up of men, women, and all who could understand. Then we're told that the Levites, whose names I won't repeat because Matt did such a great job with them, right, <laughs> taught the people so that they could understand. And at the very end of that passage, they celebrate with joy because they understood the law of the Lord. The two other times it's used in this passage, it's the Levites who are talking, it's describing their instruction. Now the word that's used here, it has to do with discernment. It has to do not just with people who are able to understand, as if the people who were there were kind of bright enough to get it, and all the people who kind of weren't very spiritual, they just stayed home. It's about discerning, it's about thinking carefully, it's about observing the world, and it's often linked quite strongly with wisdom. So the, the word occurs most frequently in the books of Proverbs and then uh, Job two of the wisdom texts in the Old Testament. It describes Joseph as being wise and understanding. It describes Daniel and his friends as wise and understanding. There are all sorts of examples where it's linked with wisdom. And wisdom, of course, is built on the fear of the Lord, right? Holding the words of God in such high regard, in such high esteem, that to do anything other than what he suggests would seem just a little bit ludicrous. Here are the people gathered together, calling on Ezra to speak to them, and they are listening with understanding. Psalm 119, which is a long psalm whose theme is the law of God, focuses on this word as well, uses it 10 times in that psalm, describing the desire of someone who wants to understand the law of God. But this is where that long list of the returned exiles becomes important for us. Because prior to the exile, before the people of Israel had undergone the the discipline of the Lord, which is how they described what had happened, there are all sorts of ways to describe what happened to the people of Israel. You could think about it from a political perspective. You could think about it from the perspective of the military or economics. But in reality, the prophets gave one reason for why they went into exile. And that was because they had not been faithful. If you go back to a passage such as Isaiah, so if you want to flip ahead to Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah, uh, in the first chapter, kind of outlines the themes that he is going to be discussing all the way through the book. Have a listen to what he says very, very early in the piece. Chapter one, verse one, uh, verse two, rather. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. If you flip ahead to Isaiah chapter 6, kind of the most famous example of this lack of understanding. It's famous because Jesus picks up the same language when he explains why he teaches in parables. And in Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, the Lord says this, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. It's the same word again doesn't actually occur heaps of other times in Isaiah, but in these two passages, it's the same word that's used in Nehemiah. Now, on the surface, it sounds as if God is basically saying that I'm gonna make sure that they can't understand, but in its wider context, in terms of how it's being used, particularly its link with wisdom, right, is that the idea is that the people's hearts have no interest in understanding. They will listen all day long, but they don't care. They don't want to know. They don't want to figure out what God has to say for them. That's revealed in how they respond. So when Jesus uses this passage, he's talking about parables, right? I speak in parables that they will always be hearing but never understanding. And yet every time his disciples came to him and said, what did that parable mean? Jesus teaches them. By their response, they indicated that they wanted to understand that they actually wanted to know what it was that God was saying, that they wanted to understand what the kingdom of heaven was like and on and on it goes. The people of Israel prior to the exile didn't want to know about it. For those of you who teach or train or supervise staff, have you ever had a staff member, a student, a report who has all the capacity in the world, all the smarts, doesn't want to know? Soul-destroying, isn't it? You're just banging your head against the wall. The people of Israel had no understanding because they didn't want to know about it. Now, what I find interesting in Nehemiah is that Nehemiah is able to point to places that God's at work Right? We completed the wall so quickly because God was with us and we completed this because God was with us and I was given success in my request to the king because God was with me. He sees God everywhere but here there's no statement to what must be partly the work of the Lord because one of the promises of God to his people prior to the exile was that this will be a discipline situation but I will change your hearts. And what do we find here? It's the people who say, We want to understand the ways of God. We really want this. Ezra, bring the law out. We've built a platform so everyone can see you. We've organized a bunch of Levites. They're going to explain it as you read it. We're going to do this all day long. There's a renovation happening, isn't there? That goes well beyond the walls. And we finally see this in the strange response that the people have. Was anyone else surprised when they started crying? Well, what are you, what are you, why are you crying? There's no crying in baseball. Right, like there's, like, what, what's going on here? Because it's out of the blue. Have a look again. Verse 8. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. And we're like, yeah, I'm right with you. And then the very next line, do not mourn or weep. What? For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. This has given me fits for two weeks. Because I want to know why they were crying. And the narrator doesn't tell us. Like what would have been helpful is some sort of verse that was inserted that said something like, and as Ezra was reading the law, the Spirit of God moved among the assembly and cut them to the quick, and they began to repent, or they began to something. Give me an explanation. None's given. I hate when the Bible does that. (laughs) Does it a lot. What's going on here? See, one of the the most common interpretations is that the people have just listened to the law and they've realized how short they have fallen. And we kind of go, yeah, that, that sounds about right. Except, this is why it's giving me fits. What spiritual leader would stop people repenting? If the Spirit of God moved through this place right now, and you all became just incredibly aware of your sin, you became incredibly aware of God's grace to you, and you began weeping and crying because God was doing something in your heart, what kind of a religious leader would I be if I said, stop it? There's no crying on Sunday mornings. And what sort of a repentance is it if two verses later you're like, oh, okay, and you go off and celebrate? But beyond that, I think this... This interpretation that this is some sort of awareness of sin is theologically suspect because it suggests that God's primary learning outcome, the one thing that he wants above everything else when people listen to the law and seek to understand it is that he wants them to be aware of how sinful they are. As if that's God's number one plan that that's his priority, that he's only happy when we're miserable. You know what, you don't find that in scripture. You just don't. Now we can do the math on it, can't we? You don't have to read the law very carefully to go, yeah, I don't live up to that. You don't have to read the words of Jesus particularly closely to go, yeah, I'm not, I, don't, I live like Jesus does. In, in, in certain areas of my life, right? We can all do the math on that one. And repentance and confession is appropriate and we get to that in chapter nine. But here the people celebrate because they have understood the law. So what would they have understood? And what would I want you to understand if you'd said to me, just read that law and explain it so we get it? Well, I'd want you to understand the plans and purposes of God and that you are a part of them. I'd want you to understand that just sitting here, thinking about and seeking to understand what God is on about is evidence of the success of his plans and purposes. That his plans and purposes have included you and me. From the very beginning. I would want you to understand that we have been brought into a relationship with God by the strength and power of his mighty saving hand. I'd want to recount to you again the ways in which God's promises have been fulfilled and the ways in which he has been faithful and the ways that he has saved you so that when we come to talk about the obligations of that relationship, you are not racked with grief but actually inspired to live into all that God has welcomed us to. Now there may be some repentance along the way but I'd like to think that what's happening here is actually much bigger. But the author hasn't told us why they're crying because they're crying for all sorts of reasons. There may very well have been some gathered there who realized just how far short they'd fallen, who had heard the law and realized that they'd, just, they'd been ignorant about something. There may have been those who wept because of the disappointment of, of a lost generation in exile because they just hadn't been able to be faithful but I reckon there were probably some tears of gratitude that this small little community in this small little city in a province that's just one small part of the Persian Empire, that God's been faithful, that he brought us back like he said he would, that he's changed our hearts. I mean, our ancestors were never wanting to listen to the word of the Lord like we just have today. That's amazing. There were tears, perhaps, of joy. All of this mixed together. And it's where Nehemiah's word, the most famous verse in Nehemiah, funnily enough, verse 10, This day is holy to our Lord, do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. All right. We don't list the people who came back from exile and hanging on our fridges, but we, we, this one makes it, doesn't it? The joy of the Lord is your strength. I think that holds the key for us. I think that holds the key for us. Because I think one of the other pieces that might have been moving in the hearts of those who listened would have been wrapped up with the purposes of God. and would have been wrapped up with that sense that, you know what, there's still so much more to be done. The plans and purposes of God are so great and we're so far from them and, and how is this ever going to happen? And Nehemiah for the moment says, do not weep. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now apparently, the little preposition can be the joy in the Lord is your strength. But most interpretations, most translations stick with of. Which means that this is the Lord's joy that we are sharing in. The Lord's joy. And what is it there in this passage that might bring delight to the Lord? If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 147. Psalm 147, it's uh, the, the wrap-up of, it's not the, the, the final psalm, but it's in the wrap-up of the psalms. It's, the, it's uh, one psalm of praise in, in a number of them. But listen to how it goes in verse 2. I'll start in verse one. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. Why? The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted, binds up their wounds. And at the same time, I've just added that, he determines the number of stars and calls them each by name. The God who returns the exiles, who builds up the city, is the same God who's created the world. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with grateful praise. Make music to our God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain. He makes grass grows on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. Here it is. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. What have the people in Nehemiah 8 done? They've turned to the Lord in order to understand They've turned to the Lord because they want to fear the Lord. And the Lord delights in that. Zephaniah 3.17 promises that the Lord will delight over you with singing. And why is that important? Well, it's important for a couple of reasons, right? First of all, first of all, that's why we're not crying today. (laughs) Because God is really happy. The Lord is delighted in what is taking place here. There's a time for confession. Right now, let's rejoice because we are sharing in God's delight. But also, that it is the delight of the Lord that is our strength. The purposes and plans of God, which we've been invited to participate in, are utterly beyond us, are they not? It's a rhetorical question demanding a yes, right? Like, they're totally beyond us. The idea that we could have anything but a small, small part in the restoration and renewal of all things in Christ Jesus is almost laughable, isn't it? How in the world are we going to achieve that? Well... The strength will come from the Lord. Our strength comes from the delight of the Lord in those who fear him. See how that kind of works? Our task isn't just to do it all. Our task isn't to achieve the the renewal of all things. Our task is to turn to the Lord and desire to understand him, to fear him, to put him first, and to make sure that we hold his teachings in such high regard and such high esteem that to do anything else would be foolish and ludicrous. That's our job. Our strength is found in God's delight. This is an utterly amazing passage. Because while they finish finished the wall in miraculous time, there is still so much more that God wants to do through this group of people. But it begins with this group of people seeking the Lord. And they do so imperfectly. The ending of Nehemiah is not wildly encouraging, spoiler alert. The people are not perfect, but they have turned to the Lord nonetheless in order that they might understand. And when we turn to the Lord, that delights the Lord. And it is in the joy of the Lord that we find our strength for the tasks, the purposes the laws and commands that we have been invited to participate in as God's people. And I find that pretty encouraging. You don't get to say this very often in the Old Testament. Be like the Israelites. Let us turn our hearts to the Lord. Let us turn our hearts to understand to not be those who are ever hearing but never perceiving, but who actually turn to the Lord in order that we might understand his ways and to follow along in our own stumbling, faltering kind of way. It's as simple and as complex as that. And at a very pragmatic, practical level, It's this that I hope we will experience as we go through this process of discernment. Are we doing it perfectly? Probably not. Are we all adequately prepared to hear from the Lord? Probably not. Will we get it all right even when we figure out what we think God's inviting us to? No. But I do hope, encouraged by Scripture, That as we turn our hearts to God, even imperfectly, as we take faltering steps towards him, that we will find the same thing that people did here. That the joy of the Lord will be our strength. I'm counting on it. I'm believing for it. That this might be our experience too. As the people of God gathered here. So be like the Israelites and register for the Day of Discernment. Those are your applications. One's a little bit big. The other's really specific. You could probably do the second one really quickly. Say now even if you wanted to. Let me pray as we wrap up and Matt comes and closes our service. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you that you invite us into your plans and purposes. And thank you that ultimately it has nothing to do with our strength, our capacity, or even our understanding that those promises will be fulfilled. You will fulfill your promises for the glory of your name, for your purposes, for your reasons, for your great love for us. But it is a wonderful privilege to be part of it. And Heavenly Father, hearing about your plans and purposes, the life that you have called us into of Intimate participation with you can evoke all sorts of emotions in us. A sense of confession and contrition over having failed. A sense of disappointment at missed opportunities. A sense of gratitude for your faithfulness. A relief in your constancy. And yet in the midst of all of that, when we turn our hearts to you in order that we might understand your ways, we see that you are delighted in that. And while we do so imperfectly and while we are, well, we're who we are, your promises never fail. Your purposes will come to pass. And it's in your strength that we will do that. I pray for each person here today on site and online and ask that we might turn our hearts to you this week. That we might be deliberate and intentional about seeking to understand the way in which you have called us to live. And that in so doing, we might be met with your delight. That we might find strength in the joy of the Lord. For we ask it in Jesus' name.
0: We pray this message has challenged and strengthened you, encouraged you to pray and to rely on God and blessed your life today.